Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This will be a fun one. Yes, it will. I've been looking forward to this. So to get started, could you give the audience a little bit of background about who you are and what it is you do? Sure. I'm Adam Lane Smith. I am the attachment specialist. I worked for many, many years as a licensed marriage and family therapist before I really found that attachment theory was at the heart of all of the diagnoses that I was working with, or just about all. And when I started working with my patients on attachment, they started making recoveries that other therapists and that our schooling had told us shouldn't happen. So I now coach all over the world and teach people about attachment and how to fix it with an easy process that I used myself when I had attachment issues as a young man. That's amazing. Now, for whoever might not be familiar with the word attachment, what is attachment and how does it relate to everything from depression to relationships? Mm, attachment, I'll make it really, really simple. No tech, no textbook definition, yes, really please. easy for people to understand. <laughs> uh, when we are born as little kids, we know that we are supposed to have two biological parents and we know that they are supposed to care for us and we are born into this world trying to figure out how people will meet our needs, if they will love us, if they will care for us, if they will be fair, if they will be uh, in good faith with us, if they will work together and cooperate during conflicts, or if we have to guard ourselves from everybody in the world, or if there's something wrong with us that makes us unworthy of love. And we decide that based on how our biological parents treat us, how our family of origin treats us, and how we grow up. And if you grow up in a system that teaches you, you will be loved and cooperated with and cared for, you grow up with very low stress and you get secure attachment. If you grow up feeling like you don't deserve love and everybody hates you and nobody really cares for you and you have to constantly be perfect to try to stop people from abandoning you, you may get anxious attachment and you might do that in your romantic relationships as an adult. And if you grow up feeling like everybody around you is crazy or something's wrong with them and they can't be trusted... And there's gonna, they're going to go wrong when the stress hits, when the conflicts hit. If you think you have to guard yourself against everybody forever, you may have avoidant attachment style. And that will carry into your friendships, your romance, everything. And this really decides a lot of the quality of life. And it can feed right into other attachment issues or into psychology issues. It can feed into generalized anxiety disorder because you're afraid all the time of getting hurt. You're afraid that no one's going to have your back. So everything is alone. It amps up your anxiety. Of course it does. It makes it much easier to develop PTSD when you have a trauma. Your threshold is much lower because now you can't stop the pain from happening again. It's just going to happen again. So, of course, you're going to get PTSD. It's very easy to fall into despair and feel like it will never get better to feel hopeless and helpless. And that's depression and all of the other mental health disorders. So many of them in the book, they come right from this. And most people don't know about this. Even most therapists don't know about attachment theory. Right. You don't talk much about attachment when you're becoming a psychotherapist, do you? No, not at all. They tell you it's mostly for children because there's no diagnosis in the book that fits. That book's right up there. Um, there's no diagnosis in the book that fits adult attachment issues, except personality disorders. And those are the most extreme versions only. And there's not really medications for them. And the assessment basically is, well, you're just screwed. You'll probably never get better. And you'll just sort of go in and out of therapy all your life because you'll wreck everything. And that's that's about as much as you learn about attachment when you go through schooling to become a psychotherapist. That's that's crazy. I'm, I love that you're bringing this to the world. You know, I think it's much needed. And I have a quote here from your book, Slaying Your Fear, uh, right Thank behind you. you as well. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So it goes like this. For people with healthy attachments, every interaction is a chance to increase intimacy. 
For people with unhealthy attachments, every interaction is a chance to destroy everything we love. Right. Tell us more. Well, if it feels like every conflict is a potential end, like nobody's going to be on your side, that you have to constantly manage other people, then not only are you stressed every day about keeping your energy level high enough to fight off the next threat the moment it happens, there's your anxiety, but when you go into a situation, you cannot decide or believe that the outcome is going to be positive. You have to manage other people. You have to make them feel good. You have to convince them that it's not your fault or that it's their fault or that they need to do the right thing to help you, but it has to be selfish to them. And you can't just say, hey, this would mean a lot to me and I really need this. Could you help me? And I'll help you later. You can't just cooperate like that. It's a constant obsessive dance. It's a game of chess. Everything is a game of chess. Imagine if you were playing chess every minute of your life for the rest of your life. And if you lose one game, everything could be over. That's what it's like to have attachment issues. Wow. It, it is tough to have attachment issues. Have, having had them myself, uh, you know, it's, we're all a work in progress. But one mm. of your quotes really hit home for me because I used to think that I was an introvert. And I'm, you know, I'm very much a people person. I love Mm -hmm. to meet new people and to talk. And Mm -hmm. the fact that I thought I was an introvert really comes from my own attachment issues. And Mm -hmm. I have one quote that really highlighted this for me. The need for security often becomes fear, which becomes anger. But all the person experiences consciously is the anger. The need for belonging twists in the into a form of fearful pre-rejection with the person experiencing an anxious aversion to the presence of others. That's so true. When you, when you fixed all of this and what was that moment like when you realized, Oh, I'm not an introvert. I'm a podcast host because I'm an extrovert. What, What was that? What was that realization? Was it hard to let go of the introvert label for you? Yes, I think it was uh, definitely, it took a few years, you know, to kind of transform out of that label. Uh, But I always felt like I uh, reached my quota of, uh, you know, interactions really quickly. And, you know, compared to my husband, who's, you know, much more of an introvert than I am, I actually need people. And Mm -hmm. I I really, um, I'm so emotionally invested in every interaction that the fear of rejection was really hard and I would need yeah. to get over that. But yeah. I realized, you know, he can be around people all day because he just doesn't care. Yeah, <laughs> so. correct. That, that's the true introvert right there. And that's, that's the reason I ask is it's so hard to get people to let go of this idea. Oh, I'm just an introvert. It's almost a protective shell. Like, I don't have to go do those things because I'm an introvert. And I don't have to want those things. It's okay because I have, here, here's my introvert card. Um, so many people, they think that they're an introvert because they're afraid. And that doesn't, that's not what introversion is. Introversion is I recharge myself best when I do more things alone. And I have a little bit less tolerance for the deep level stuff. But it's not, it shouldn't be, you know, if I try to, if I have to speak to the cashier at the checkout line, I am a wreck for three days. That's not really being an introvert. That's having severe attachment issues. I am afraid (laughs) all the time in my relationships that someone will catch me being a fraud. So I am constantly scared all the time. So I stay at home and avoid parties and social gatherings scare me. Well, that, that's not being an introvert either. As, as you have discovered, you sound like an extrovert who loves social engagements. But because the emotional impact is so high, it's just fearful. So it feels like introversion. 
now that yeah. you're an extrovert, what has changed? Embracing that, what has that changed for you? Wow. Well, first of all, I recognize my need to be around people. You know, I thought I was going to go into a very academic route because I'm just going to be around books all day, writing mm. papers, and I don't need to engage with people. And what I realized is what I enjoy is, you know, teaching and interacting. And I don't like this hierarchy that keeps me at a distance. I need to actually talk about these ideas with other people or else what's the point? So a lot has changed. And, you know, I think uh, I think I'm better for it. And whatever our attachment issues, uh, we definitely leave a, lead a much healthier, more satisfied life once we recognize them and start to to correct them. Now, another another topic that I love to hear you talk about is the differences between men and women, mm -hmm. because I think in our society, we're so scared of just admitting that there are differences between us. You know, gender activists hear that and think that I'm saying men are better than women. And, you know, absolutely not the case. But recognizing these differences helps us relate to one another better and to ourselves better and, you know, our, align our lives with the things that are important for us and the things that we need. Mm -hmm. So one of your tweets that I absolutely loved about depression, uh, mm -hmm. and I'll go ahead and read it and let me know where, where it came from. Male depression is often a correct response to a life without meaning. Female depression is often a correct response to a life without love. Listen to what depression is telling you. Learn from it. It's pointing you at the poison. Then find someone to help you fix the problems. I worked for so many years with depression, with people who had depression. And I continue to help people who have depression symptoms. And I talk with thousands and thousands of them. And this is something that I kept hearing was men need a mission, a purpose. It doesn't necessarily spring from feeling loved or even from giving love. It, it's more from more having power, building things, the power to build something. Uh, for men, it springs from the power to make changes, right? And people hear me that and they, they get scared, right? Power for men. It's not, I have the power Control to- Control the world. Yeah, I have a power to club a woman <laughs> in the head and drag her to my cave and make her my slave. No, right. and that's what a lot of women <laughs> will hear. We could talk about that later, but uh, it's the power to feed your family, no matter what the economy is doing. It's the power to make friends and be of value to them. It is the power to affect good change for the for the defenseless, to help people, to protect other people, to, to enact justice, right? Uh, a police officer who rescues a domestic violence victim is using their power to help somebody. Power is not a terrible thing. It's the person and how they wield it that makes it good or bad. Power itself is necessary, though, and men especially need power to feel not helpless, to feel effective, right? The word for a man with no power is impotent. And that can describe two different problems for men. And usually one follows the other. So right. men need that. But what I have found is that women are enormously resilient, even more so than men. Women don't necessarily need power. What women need is to love others and be useful for the people that they love. And so that's a sort of power but it is really doing something for somebody else to uplift those that they love. That is what women seem to crave, most of them. And to then be loved at least a little bit in return, right? Appreciated, cherished, cared for, something. This creates so much safety and stability for her that somebody somewhere recognizes. 
the good that she does. It is so enormously important for this to happen. And when we don't get our basic needs met, we get depressed. Of course we do. We feel hopeless that it's ever going to change, especially if that goes back to childhood. And men have felt powerless since childhood and women have felt unloved since childhood. Of course, people get depressed. So what I have found is that when a man or woman is depressed, we approach it from that angle first. And the vast majority of the time, the depression starts to lift very quickly once they make some of those key changes. Then they can do all the other work that they want to do. And how does modern therapy fail men in this regard? Therapy, it takes so many branches, but the biggest one that has really taken over a lot of modern therapy is humanism. And humanism comes down to the belief that the person themselves already has their answers. The therapist just needs to facilitate the client finding their own answers in time for as long as it takes while just making them feel better in the session by providing pause, unconditional positive regard. I am all for unconditional positive regard. I am not necessarily for this belief that people come in with their ideas already in there and we just have to help them dig it out because that's what keeps people coming to me after 20 years of therapy. I was the therapist at the end of the hallway that people say, Adam, five other therapists have completely failed to make any change happen. Help me. Now, can a therapist come in and just say, all right, I will help you facilitate your own change over the next 20 years? Well, I suppose, but is that helpful to people? It's certainly not helpful to the way that men work. Men observe a problem. Our brain goes to the back to observe and forward to solve it and act upon it. If it doesn't, we need a solution, and then we can act upon it. If it clicks and clicks and clicks and like a, like a broken transmission and we can't solve it, we feel helpless, we feel hopeless, and we can't wait 20 years to figure it out on our own as a therapist charges us every single week for that, that fee. They need answers. It's, it's one reason I coach right now is I'm able to give people fast answers, and that resonates with a lot of men and maybe a little bit more masculine women sometimes. But people want the answers so that they can then implement them. That's what they want is results. They don't necessarily want to feel smart. They want results so that their pain will stop. This is where modern therapy, many, many types of it, are unfortunately failing the men who come into them. Some therapists have solution-focused. Some therapists are a little bit more like me. But by and large, the field of therapy has shifted to humanism rather than solution-focused. What do you think about the term toxic masculinity that we hear so much these days? I laugh. Um, <laughs> yes. Because it's the dumbest thing in the world. But I also recognize that any person who uses that has most likely been hurt by a man, by a man yeah. who used his power to hurt them. So I know where it comes from. I don't laugh at the people who say it. I laugh at the idea that is so utterly stupid. Here's what masculinity is. It is the absolute embracing of responsibility. That's what masculine energy really is. You embrace responsibility and you effect change. That's masculinity. Now, toxic masculinity it's really a toxic human being. It's attachment issues. It's usually personality disorders, which are the extreme version of, tox of, of attachment issues. But every time I've seen, okay, what's an example of toxic masculinity? Oh, it's this person with a personality disorder. Okay, that's not masculinity that's at the problem. Like, do, you, do, you see, right. do you see that guy over there? He's a serial killer. Maybe the problem is the serial killing. Maybe it's that he's killing and eating people. Maybe that's the challenge. What made him do that? Well, it's not masculinity. I'll just tell you that. Um, I have seen horrific, horrific acts carried out by women. I know that women are capable of it, capable of tremendous evil. Um, I saw some research not too long ago that indicates that the greatest 
the greatest likelihood of, of intimate partner violence, which includes unwanted sexual contact, emotional coercing, emotional coercing into sexual contact, including kissing or groping, was actually college-aged women who are very likely to emotionally manipulate their partner or threaten their partner or complain and whine and get their partner to do things for them, uh, including kissing. Like, if you really love me, you'll kiss me. Like, why won't you kiss me? Don't you love me? For forcing their male partners into saying things that make them feel better and forcing their male partners into making them uh, feel regu more regulated. Um, it, it's very clear that it's not masculinity that's the problem. What is the problem is a lack of masculinity, a lack of men who embrace responsibility, a lack of men who take ownership of their own mistakes and then lead forward into fixing them and helping others. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that we, you know, we demonize masculinity at our peril as a society, you know, saying sure. that masculinity itself is toxic. First of all, it abuses a whole generation of men. And, you know, when you look at society and you think of progress and innovation, you want to encourage these men, you know, to be the best that they can be. And at the end of the day, I think these, you know, disgruntled women want men that they can rely on and and making them, you know, demoralized isn't isn't the way to get there for sure. I, I here's here's something that really struck me. I remember talking with a very dear friend about this same topic. And he said, so we're raised in school. Right? I was raised in California public school. We're raised in school to believe that every man in history was completely abusive to his wife and children and loved beating them and loved assaulting his wife. And every man in history did this. And it's all it only stopped in the last 30 years. Right. OK, that's what we're taught. But every single man I've ever known just about except for hardened criminals actually care about their family they they care about them they want their daughters to do well they try to talk with their wife about solving problems they try to work on things they they genuinely care about other people to say that every man in history has been a complete violent sociopath just because he could and that changing a couple of laws and shaming men into submission is the only thing that keeps those men moral flies completely in the face, number one, of any sort of humanity for men that strips men of their dignity as human beings. And number two, it's just not accurate when you look around at the men that you know. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I would argue even, I would take that one step further and say, you know, if we're putting the psychopaths aside for a second, and we're talking about men who have had hard lives and have anger management issues you know, a lot of times they're hurting a lot and they have not found any ways to deal with their pain. So we see uh, abusive relationships, but even there have a little bit of empathy, right? I mean, I'm just thinking of uh, my grandfather. He led a very hard life and he was a loving husband, a loving father with a little bit of a temper, right? And And have a little empathy when you see it closer to you. I think that it's easier to not demonize all men and right. understand that there's a lot of pain behind a lot of these behaviors as well. Absolutely. I, I think that there's a better answer than saying all men are monsters and they are only constrained by the force of, well, police. So other men with guns, 
and government. <laughs> so, okay, men oh, put wow. them in prison and then guard them Don't in prison. Don't get started. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing to say. Is there work that needs to be done so that people don't abuse power? Oh, yeah. But that comes back to attachment. Your grandfather probably didn't get the training he needed to understand he could cooperate with other people. When men are angry, it's because they usually feel that they are not being taken seriously and they won't be cooperated with. So their anger is a secondary emotion to feeling helpless or feeling like they are uncared for or feeling sad or feeling scared. The, the anger is a secondary emotion. Fixing that first emotion it's not about saying, oh, he's really the victim here and excusing his behavior. No, it's about telling people, look, this is going to hurt you and your family, but here's this other skill you can use. Let's practice it together and let's get you through it so that the anger is now pointless and you can do these proper things. By and large, most people will say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'd rather do that. And they try it a couple times and it works and then they'll keep doing it. That's how you solve family problems. Not what was that? that? That feminist in the UK not too long ago called for all men to be put in underground concentration camps where women are allowed to visit them because men are too much of a danger to allow in society anymore. That's that's not the answer, guys. Maybe it's it's actually to solve the problems that are making people hurt. Wow. Wow. I did not hear about that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but she didn't definitely didn't have any healthy relationships with men throughout her life, unfortunately. You would think. <laughs> I can assume. I can assume. Now, I want to talk about modern society and how it's failing us in many ways. So you have a wonderful tweet here. You're unhappy because you're not meant to be living like this. It's not just that your brain isn't optimized for the modern world. The modern world sparks constant danger alarms in your brain, and it all runs counter to your biological imperatives. You can't live like this. So how does modern society create insecure men and fail us overall. You know, I've got I've got four little children of my own and I have a wonderful wife who homeschools them. She's a stay-at-home mom. Wow. I don't say she doesn't work. I say she's a stay-at-home mom who homeschools our children. And Absolutely. our kids are able to do their work kind of on their own schedule. They're two or three grades ahead of all their peers who are in public school because of this. They they can do their own work a bit on their own schedule. We pick topics that resonate with them that day, and we make sure that they focus in on topics they don't maybe want to do that day. But we, we focus in on them at appropriate times. If they got to use the bathroom, they go use the bathroom. If they're hungry, they have snack time. They, they can regulate themselves to a large extent. And my oldest is only seven. They are so so far ahead of their peers, it's not even funny. Now, we have a family friend that has a son that our, our, our sons play together. They've both been rambunctious, crazy, wild boys, or the other boy was until he started attending public school. And he was raised very much like my son, but a shift in their family, and they had to send him to public school. Fairly quickly, um, the teacher, unqualified teacher, diagnosed him with ADHD. It's not supposed to be done. Even a therapist shouldn't diagnose you with ADHD. A therapist should send you to a specialist who then sends you through a series of tests to ferret out if it's anxiety, attachment, ADHD, being rambunctious, being all kinds of other things. Do you actually have this? No, the teacher diagnosed him and went to the principal and said, this, uh, this boy is, is disruptive in my school, in my class, and we need to expel him or force him to be on medication. And the principal went to the parents and said, if you don't find a doctor who agrees with our diagnosis and medicate your child and provide proof that you're medicating your child for ADHD, he will be expelled from our school. And now the child's on medication because they didn't have an option, really. And wow. I wish that this was an isolated story. 
But the call is going up all over the United States and Canada, Europe, even that this is happening all over the place. This is common. So last research I found was that one in seven little boys is now medicated for ADHD here in the United States. These are not good medications to put kids on when they're five, six years no. old for have life. Have you ever been on Ritalin or Adderall? I have not. Thank goodness. I have not. It's it's awful. <laughs> it's yeah. awful. I well, tried and, it to like, study once. It's it's like you're in a tunnel, and then when it wears off, you're depressed. It's just the worst. Imagine if you grow up your entire life with that, and you never know who you really are without it, and your brain chemistry forms around it, all your habits form around it, all your self-beliefs and relationships form around it. That is your reality, and you don't even know who you are without that medication. Uh, put that together with we, the reason we do that is boys are not allowed to stand up from their seat. They have to stay seated for all, all of that eight hours. They're there. They're there. Like, have, can you stay seated for eight hours? He, <laughs> I mean, doctors, doctors tell doctors tell you that kills you, that that will kill you. And we have to make them do that. They're not allowed to stand up, stretch their legs. Nope. Get back in your seat immediately. They can't use the bathroom. They need to. Nope. You have to hold it or you have to beg permission to do it. They can't eat when they need to. Nope. You have to stay, wait for this time. Then you're going to be so hungry. You're going to wolf down everything you can. And then you, if you eat fast, then you get to run outside and play. You have to choose between eating or playing. Which one do you want to do at your lunchtime? Like, really? That's horrible. And then we load them down with homework when they get home. So the end of the day is loaded up with homework and they're not playing. Like, how is, how is this natural? And this is just the beginning of our life. Modern life is not geared for what we are built for at all. Modern life is built to make us do things that are convenient for what industry, usually. I was just reading a paper not too long ago that before Henry Ford instituted the 40-hour work week, a lot of people worked 100 hours a week. Him instituting the 40-hour work week that people curse his name for was a godsend, and he didn't reduce their wages. He paid them the same amount for 40 hours of labor, five days a week. It was a miracle for so many people. The Industrial Revolution, losing our farms, families being shoved together into close conditions, losing their families. We can talk more about that anytime, but yes. modern society is not built for us to then spread out and then separate, and then 10 different family members living in 10 different one-room apartments, paying 10 different rents, going into debt to try to manage this, living alone. Maybe you have a cat. You watch Netflix at the end of the night so you can feel like there are other humans, and you watch videos about other people getting together and say, why don't I have friends and family like they do on TV? And that's not that's not how we're supposed to live. And that's how you so know, many people are living. I think one of the reasons that the show Friends has been so successful and still is, is because people crave that communal style of living, being around your friends, having someone to talk to. If you have a problem, you have someone to share it with. If you have good news, you have someone to share it with. And I think the fact that we're living such isolated lives it, and that makes us go into more escapist versions, you know, of porn, weed, uh, you know, wh whatever it is, just constantly binge watching Netflix because we're just starving for human connection. So what can we do about it? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, to that point, people are starving for friendship. I want to make two points here. One is a joke that I heard recently, which is that the greatest miracle that Jesus of Nazareth ever performed was to have 12 friends in his adult <laughs> life. And that's it's, a lot of people will laugh at that, but it's true. 
And secondary to that is research that came out recently that 30% 30 of millennials, this is about roughly age 24 to 44 or 45, somewhere in there, 30% are so crushingly lonely every single day that it's leading to thoughts of suicide and depression. So if you out there, everybody listening to this, are lonely, you are not alone in it. Everybody else is too. That's just the suicidally depressed, lonely people. Then there's a whole layer of people that just wish they had a friend, but they're still bucking through. They have one friend. They wish they had two friends. So anybody who's lonely, the best thing you can do is find somebody to be your friend. Find one friend. There's so many ways to do this. So many ways to do this. It's very simple once you learn the process for it. But get out there. Find a hobby or an interest that you have and find a place where other people are doing it too. If this means a religious community, fantastic. Join a church, join a synagogue, join a whatever, whatever you're going to do. Um, don't just go once a week to the services and sit in the chairs and look. Go join a small group. Go join a, a group inside of that community and, and get in, in closer contact with people who are more into it, maybe than those people that are just coming and going really fast. Um, pick up a skill, maybe a martial art, maybe dancing, maybe cooking. Go where people are doing that. Pick up an interest or hobby or volunteering or anything else, professional networking through your job, learning skills related to your job, anything, start meeting people. And then you talk to them there while you're there, and then you have something in common instantly. And then you start talking to them a little bit more. And then after two or three times, you say, hey, you're pretty cool, and I like talking to you. Would you like to meet up outside of this and continue talking about other stuff? Then you go on a coffee date with a friend kind of thing. You learn about them. You get their contact info. And then you have something in common with them and you can talk with them. This It's this right. simple. And then you say, hey, you're cool. Would you like to be my friend? And it's that <laughs> easy. No, it's that easy. Because nobody ever says, how dare you ask me to be your friend? People say, oh, thank God. Somebody asked me <laughs> to be their friend. I have a friend. Absolutely. I think, you know, even... Well, first of all, I think the fear of rejection uh, is at the heart of this. A lot of people just are afraid to approach. But even the friends that I do have, everyone is so overworked these days. You know, modern society is so draining that just making time for friends is also not so easy. You know, we need to schedule two weeks in advance. And these are, are real issues that we're dealing with. But I think this more communal style of living and just keeping friendships you know at the forefront and not and not letting it just slide to the wayside and really maintaining these relationships it leads to a more fulfilling life um so i 100% agree with that do you schedule that for yourself do you schedule in friendship time or do you try to be spontaneous with it oh no i do not like spontaneity <laughs> whatsoever I, I schedule I, everything. I Google Calendar. I, I have every every night at about eight thirty. I stop work. Eight o'clock. I stop work. Cool down for a half hour. Eight thirty to nine thirty or ten o'clock. Ten thirty. Time with my wife every night. Every Friday, no work. I spend all day playing with my kids all day long. Oh, every morning that. we do breakfast together as a family. Um, it's scheduled in. It just is. Every Saturday morning, I have a meeting with one of my best friends. Saturday night, I have a meeting with one of my other closest friends. Sunday morning, I have a meeting with another close friend after I go to church. Um, every single week, this is the same schedule that we all follow so that we make sure we have time together. Is it hard to slot in time for other people throughout the week? Oh, yes, it is. 
but I make sure I have my three closest friends and I have my family covered, absolutely covered. You have to schedule it. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. I think that leads to a really much richer life. So I definitely, uh, I definitely do that. And I try to host dinner parties here and there when I can and just force people to come together. And usually they're dying for the invitation, you know, they're dying for someone to organize these kinds of things because it is hard and everyone is bogged down in their day-to-day lives. So, you know, if you're listening, do it, organize the meetup. Uh, people will thank you for it. And, and we have technology and you can make that happen too. I have my private community, the attachment circle. So it's a discord server. It's 24 seven people pop in and talk all day long, all night long. But twice a week, we have group zoom calls for group coaching. And some people build their whole week around those two calls because that's their biggest human interaction that they get to have. And God bless them. We, we talk, we share, we laugh, we connect, and it changes their week for them. And people need something like this. If you don't have friends, find an online group, find a connection point, find some sort of way to get involved with somebody. You don't have to go out on the street corner and say, hey, who wants to be my friend? I got 10 bucks. You don't have to do that. You can find, start with an online group. It's The barrier to entry is so low. 100%. 100%. I think that, you know, we can make use of technology these days and it does have good things to offer. So these mm-hmm. kinds of gated communities, uh, as you like to call them, I mm-hmm. really, really agree with that. I was recently this year, um, I was in this like kind of group dynamics a course mm-hmm. and it was a little bit of group therapy, a little bit of group dynamics. It was mm-hmm. wonderful. Uh, I was very hesitant at first, but you know, it was a mix of people of all ages and you open up and you hear other people opening up and no one rejects you and everybody, mm-hmm. you know, accepts each other and you realize how much you have in common. And it was very refreshing. So I definitely recommend it. Isn't it life changing when somebody accepts you, even if it's some couple people on the internet and they just are kind to you and they don't spit on you or throw a rock at you. They're just genuinely kind. And you're like, oh, this is possible. Isn't that amazing? It is. It is. And I think, you know, for me personally, the group aspect was the scariest because I'm good one-on-one. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I tend to kind of get along and create connections easily when it's one-on-one, but groups always seemed a little bit more intimidating. You know, mm-hmm. the group think kind of mentality. I always thought <laughs> maybe, maybe there's something different here. And then all of a sudden having that shift it really is life changing. So I do, I do really recommend it for people uh, who haven't Absolutely. experienced it. Absolutely. So I'd like to talk a little bit about modern dating today. Mm-hmm. Now, in general, you know, we're hearing a lot about monogamy, monogamy in general being on the way out and open relationships and all of these things. What do you think about monogamy? Is it here to stay? I think it's hard. Um, I think it's a hard choice. A lot of men struggle with it throughout their life. Um, some women too. I think that monogamy can be very difficult. I also know that the research indicates very strongly that kids do incredibly well inside of a monogamous married relationship when children are raised inside a marriage. Um, monogamy and marriage is the business of building a family or a legacy together is what it really is. Think of it more like a business. It's not a romance. 
that should be included in it. But monogamy, a monogamous marriage is not, oh, let's do this because it feels good and happy for the rest of our lives. And it's going to be so fun. It's let's build something together. And then let's build, put a contract on that. And let's unify around one name usually so that it's it's unified and we are one team. We have uniforms. We have everything. Let's <laughs> raise our children and grandchildren together inside this consistency. That's what marriage is for. Marriage is the business of building a life together that is bigger than the life each of you could have built individually. That, that's what it's for. So the idea of that going away is pretty laughable because that's the idea. That's the, the plan that the only thing that has worked for that. For all of human history, that's what our ancestors designed it for. It is not supposed to be the absolute highest level of hedonism and joy and sexual pleasure forever. Now, can it be? Absolutely. If you do monogamous marriage very well with fully secure attachment and great communication, the sex gets better and better and better throughout your life. It doesn't drop off a cliff and die. No, that's not how it works. It is fulfilling. It's wonderful. Now, is monogamy for every single person? Am I going to, is Adam going to go out roving the streets with a gun, forcing people to join monogamous marriages? Probably not. Not in the next five <laughs> years, at least. Um, am I forcing monogamy on people? No, I'm not. But, but is it by and large probably the answer that most people seek? Even men? Yes. Absolutely. If you ask most men what they want, well, it's, it's to be married and have a wife and maybe a couple of kids and build a little family together. That's what most men want. Turns out that's what most women want too, but most people are terrified to admit that in today's day and age. Oh, I just, I'm just here to have fun and just see what happens. A hundred percent. I mean, this culture of, you know, hookups and casual dating that we've all been sold. And, you know, I think women, especially men, I can see how they can get behind it uh, in their twenties, but women, it just goes against the way we bond and what we're looking for. And I think, I think that it's really, really damaging. So why is hookup culture a huge lie? In well, it's based, on, it's based on fear, isn't it? I mean, yeah, there's sexual pleasure. There's joy. I'm not saying hookup culture is no happiness or fun in it whatsoever. Obviously, it's fun. It's a dopamine binge, though, isn't it? It is people looking for other people. Usually, those people are pretty hurt. They're afraid of getting trapped. They're afraid of getting stuck or tricked into relationships. So they don't have really relationships. They hook up because it's fun and easy just to bang one out really quick with a stranger and then leave. And it's not really, I mean, yeah, dogs will do that in the streets when they meet. But mm -hmm. by and large, that's not really what most humans crave. The research actually shows that 2% of women prefer hookups and 98% of women prefer a loving, committed relationship. Um, one big concern here is oxytocin bonding. So women oxytocin bond through making out, through kissing, through foreplay, through sexual, physical contact, and especially through orgasm. Women really oxytocin bond hardcore. So they develop feelings really, really easily. And especially if they very rarely had oxytocin as a kid. And if they have any anxious attachment, a lot of women are just going along with hookup culture, hoping that if they're fun enough, someone won't abandon them. Someone will choose to pity them enough to keep them. And then she just has to try to make him feel good forever. But then that's her sex drive will fall off a cliff in a year. Um, that's what a lot of hookup culture is built on is injured people using other injured people to try to feel good for a moment. That's what it is. And it's crushingly sad. 
It makes women feel grateful and empowered for being used. And a lot of guys forget you're even in the room. They're just banging one out really quick using your body, which is really just enhanced masturbation is all that is. And it's, man, it's, it's, it is not what most people really are long-term meant for. And it does damage. And it does make people feel very unfulfilled. I work with so many young people in their early 20s who are desperately unhappy with hookups. And they just want a loving partner. And I'm not talking about women. I'm even talking about men who just want that. Like, guys go through a hookup or two and then say, well, this is all there really is. I mean, this is okay, but what else is there? Right. And I think that it creates this misconception of, you know, that men have of women and then that women have of men. And it just perpetuates it even more. And, you know, I sit with my single girlfriends and sometimes the things that they tell me in terms of how they see dating and what they think they need to do. You know, having sex on the first date is totally fine. We're in 2023. And if we had good chemistry and we had laughs and then we had good sex and then he doesn't call me the next day, they're so confused, right? And guys, guys are not necessarily going to bond with you um, right out the gate. It doesn't work that way. Almost never. And especially not through sex. They don't get the, the, the oxytocin release that men get does not seem to be as significant. And it seems to just move the fluid along as it were. (laughs) Men get a, men get a lot more dopamine rush. So it's like, wow, that was a delicious hamburger. I will come here again next time I'm hungry, but you don't live at a diner. You don't marry the diner owner. You don't hang out at the diner 24 seven all the time. You might come back when you're hungry, lady, but maybe maybe later you don't want a hamburger. Maybe you want a steak next time. So you go to a steak place instead of the burger place. It's assuming that men are going to fall in love with the hamburger. Some men might, but most men, <laughs> most men are going to just say, hey, thanks for that. That was fun. They put their pants on. They go find somewhere to play Xbox next. It's just a dopamine binge for them. And most women are sitting there going, didn't we just share something special? Right, no. right. Yeah, I mean that's the tragedy. And I think you know I have um uh I have some sympathy for young women who don't understand this uh right off the bat, but right. you know at some point, you know, it's okay to put boundaries up. And I think people are so afraid of bringing up commitment on the first date or in the first couple of dates and just saying what they want. And oh. you know, I've heard you say that men are also afraid of this. So if someone is getting ready for a first date listening to this, what is your advice? So if you don't want to be like the countless women who come to me at eight years in a relationship and the guy still won't say I love you and still won't marry you and still is considering an open relationship because you're sort of pushing for any kind of label at all at eight years. If you don't want to end up like that, I greatly suggest that you filter those men out immediately at the first date. So you could say something like, hey, you know what, just to make sure we're on the same page, uh, long term, I'm looking for a committed relationship. We don't have to get married today. Relax. But uh, down the road, I'd, I'd like to make sure we're in a committed relationship. I would like kids and I'd like marriage. Is that what you want too? If so, amazing. We'll go on a second date. It'll be awesome. If not, hey, it's cool. We'll finish our dinner. We'll high five. We'll go our separate ways mm-hmm. as friends. Uh, what do you want in a relationship? And you just have that plain conversation at the end of the first date, after you've had chemistry, after you've had fun, after you've talked, great. Have that first date conversation. 
See if the other person is on board. Men who don't want commitment will say, yeah, I want that or no, I don't really want that. I'm looking for fun. And you filter them out pretty quick because the second, third date, you can talk more about commitment, kind of what that looks like. And you can start saying, hey, in the sake of for the, for the sake of a committed relationship, here's something else to talk about. And you can start filtering much more quickly. I have a three date method that I teach to people in coaching and in my community. But men who want commitment will be thrilled to hear that you want commitment and that that's what you're looking for. You're not just one more girl saying, oh, well, we'll have fun. We'll see where it goes. Guys don't <laughs> commit to the fun girl. Guys usually commit to the girl who's like, no, this is what I'd like. And do you want that too? Because that means you're going to be that clear for the rest of the relationship and make his life so drama free and low maintenance and so easy because you'll just tell him what you want. He's not going to have to play endless games figuring it out. And you're the kind of person that knows what she wants so he can actually build a life with you. That's do with that, young women and young men. Young men are just as petrified that talking about commitment on the first date is going to make a woman run from the table. It's it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But for some reason, every man in America right now believes that women don't want commitment and that talking about commitment will make them flee the room. And women might be listening to this laughing, and I laugh too, but it's also sad. Please talk about commitment. Talk about what you want on the first date. At the end of the first date, do that. That is so much better for bonding than having sex on the first date. Then you don't have to have sex on the first date because you can say, okay, cool. Um, let's have a second date and let's see how we gel and let's talk some more and let's make some connections and see if we're a good match. And then down the road, if we're a good match, we can talk about a committed relationship. That's wonderful. You don't have to give a handshake at the end of the day. You can do a kiss <laughs> or something, but you don't have to sleep with him on the first date because now he's very interested in you because you're somebody who wants what he wants. Be the woman who stands out from the crowd by talking clearly about what she wants and giving him what he's looking for. Not sex, not a quick you know, bang, but a committed relationship. That's how you stand out from the crowd. Absolutely. I think, you know, um, looking back at the, the first dates uh, that me and my husband had, we bonded over shared values. You know, I was so inspired by his life journey and he was inspired by mine. And we were talking about the kind of futures that we were envisioning for ourselves. And there was alignment there, you know, and, and that was exciting. And those conversations, you know, they went into the night and we, we didn't notice the time was passing. And those conversations are really what creates the foundation at the beginning. So don't be afraid, you know, to say what you're looking for, to show who you are. And I, you know, I tell um, my, my single girlfriends, come to every date with an open heart. You know, don't come with walls up, be open. You know, guys are, are a lot of times, they're so afraid of rejection. If he's a good one, you know, he's going to really want to impress you. So just make him feel comfortable, show who you are and ask about him, you know, be interested. Come with I an think, open heart and be smart yeah. and have clear goals. That's it. hundred percent. A hundred percent. So in terms of dating apps today, unfortunately, it's the way to go. We, we met on a dating app and, you know, uh, me and my husband, like we live in the same city for years now mm -hmm. and we were just not in the same social circles. And I joke that even the cafes we would work at were different. He would go to all like the nerdy cafes. I like the cool Tel Avivian cafes. Anyways, we had no chance of meeting and we met on Bumble and I think that one of the important things on the apps is 
to really express yourself in a way, you know, everyone's swiping and they're going to have a, a few seconds to glimpse at you. And I think the photos can tell a story, but also the things that you write and have a way of expressing your values very quickly, showing who you are. You know, you said filtering out, guys. I wrote uh, at the very top, big nerd. <laughs> if a guy can't hold an intellectual conversation for more than five minutes, you know, we're not meant to be and it's okay. Look elsewhere. Uh, but, but you know, things that I enjoy doing to, that give a little taste of, you know, who I am and what kind of life I'm leading. So I think these are really important things. And what have you found in terms of dating apps and, you know, strategies that work? Treat it like a job resume and a job posting at the same time. So right at the top, what do you put on a resume? Seeking long-term position in this field, right? That's what <laughs> you put, because then they know, okay, this person actually wants to be here. So in, in your dating profile, you know, seeking a long-term committed relationship based on cooperation, honesty, and good companionship, you know, something like that, or just cooperation and honesty, that's enough. The values that you say you're looking for are what people are going to judge you as having, because if you value it, you probably embody it, is what they're going to think, typically. So looking for a long-term committed partner who values cooperation and honesty, something like that. On, a, on the top, you're dating app. After that, you start listing things that make you seem stable, because that's refreshing, <laughs> to be honest with you. Everybody on there is fun, fun, fun. I'm a dog walking, beach lounging, like this kind of person. I'm no just responsibility. Here for fun. Let's see what happens. No responsibility. Yeah, like, don't do that, please. That just makes you look like the worst catch in the world. And you're not. You're so much better than that. Um, Come at it from an angle of, okay, here's here's what I want in life. Here's what I'm chasing in life. What's your passion that you're chasing? What's your long-term goal that you want? Is it family, kids? Is it a career? Is it whatever it might be? Put that on there too. Can you list some hobbies and some interests that you do? Yeah, but that shouldn't be the meat and potatoes of what you're putting out there. Like you said, a couple things you enjoy that you're a nerd, things you value in the other person, right? Looking for deep conversation, looking for good cooperation during conflicts when they pop up and wanting to make sure that I can build a life that makes sense in the context of helping other people, you know, something like that, whatever it might yeah. be. Um, and then please, please, please make sure your profile picture is not like everything else. If you're a dude, please don't have a picture of you holding a fish. I mean, that, that worked, that worked, no, that worked like 20,000 years ago before agriculture of, hey, look how big <laughs> the fish are that I can catch. And then a woman is starving and she's like, hey, he has fish. Probably wow. not going to work today. <laughs> Probably not going to work today. I'll just, just tell you. Um, don't have a picture of just your abs with no face. Don't have a bathroom picture. And don't have your, like, stuffy, like, school picture where you're, like, all suited up, but you look so uncomfortable. Don't do that. Um, and ladies, please, like, a shirt that goes to, like, here, right? Like, you can show a little skin, but not, like... Hey, look, it's yes. all the way down to my belly button. And I view, you know, please don't do that. Um, you don't have to look like any of the words that we're not allowed to use anymore on here. Um, please, <laughs> please don't make yourself look, you know, kind. Smile. Dress nicely and smile. And you would be shocked what that will do. Do your hair up a little bit. You don't have to have super makeup. You're not trying to look like a porn star. 
Um, look the way you would want him to expect you to look on your first date. Look the way that you'd expect you would want him to look on your anniversary dinners. Dress as if it's your, your third anniversary dinner with your husband and you have a good marriage and you want him to see you in a good light. Dress that way for your dating profile because that's the woman he's going to want to invest in and have those anniversary dinners with. Do that. So wow. please but go hire somebody who's good at photography. Hire a photographer. Get a good dating, you know, good, uh, dating app picture. Um, there's people that tell them it's for a dating app. You know, it's just going to be here and up. Do a couple pictures. Um, do the invest in that because number one, it looks like you have a little bit of money. Number two, spending you know hundred, two hundred dollars on a nice picture that gets you an amazing husband or wife for the rest of your life. It's worth it. And number three, you'll stand out from everybody else. So it was like the, the the bathroom pic or the abs or the fish or the abs with the fish in his bathroom or the girl who's like with like six of her friends. They're all drunk. And you're trying to yes. guess which one she is. Like, wow, like, yes. You know what I mean? Like, do it. I've I've recently uh, met with two single girlfriends and they showed me their dating apps. And that's one of the things I told them. You yeah. guys are sending out drunk girl vibes with that, with those pictures that you have of friends. And she said, but don't I look social? Don't I want to show no. that I'm social? No, he does, that's, he doesn't that's, know. Yeah, that's pump and dump. That's pump and dump. The guys see that and go, hey, I can hit that real quick and then find an actual woman I'd want to talk to the next day. That's what that is. Look, look like you're going out to a wonderful anniversary dinner with a husband that you actually love. And then maybe a picture of you with your family. So it shows you value family. And then maybe a picture of you, you know, getting a diploma or something kind of cool, but not drunk. Please not, no, not with a drunk and not with a drink in your hand. Um, <laughs> something respectful and tasteful. You at a wedding. Right. You at a friend at a birthday party, something kind, um, you looking nice, you with your family. These are the things that decent men really want to see. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, in our modern society where women are so hungry for a connection, but they've been sold this lie that they need to just be cool and casual at the end of the day, serious men, quality men are looking for marriage material and you do not want to, you know, come off across as, as you said, like the, the drunk girl kind of vibe. It's not, you don't want to be this relaxed, easygoing, no responsibilities. You want to show that you have substance. If so, they, if, if they yeah. sold Air Jordans for $5 a pair at Walmart, nobody would want Air Jordans. Don't act like a $5 pair of shoes at Walmart if you know that you are a pair of Air Jordans. Because men who want Air Jordans and who will cherish them and value them are looking for Air Jordans. They're not going to Walmart looking for the bar in the bargain bin. Don't, don't act like a Walmart bargain bin kind of woman. Act like the woman that you actually are. A hundred percent. Now, for the people who are already in a relationship... What do women need to feel secure in a relationship? And what do men need in order to be committed to the relationship? Women need to be taken seriously as a cherished partner. They need to be trusted. They need emotional intimacy where he opens up and shares concerns with her and talks about decision points and things like that with her. They need to know what's going on in his inner world. They need to be his confidant. 
They need. They don't usually want to be the captain, but they usually want to be the first mate who runs the ship. They don't want to be the president, but they're happy to be the VP. They don't want to be the CEO. They want to be the COO in, in charge of operations. Like, give me the vision and help me understand the vision and share with me, and I will make it happen. That's usually what women are, most women, default into in relationships, typically. And that's where they typically are most fulfilled as well. But to do that, they need to him opening up. They need him sharing. They need him telling her what's going on. They need to know what's happening with him. Then she can predict him. She can help him. She can optimize things around that. She can become more valuable through the years to him and gain security. Because some blonde bimbo in a bikini who walks by at you know 19 years old isn't going to drag his head around. Because he has his wife who provides so much value that that woman could never learn to provide. Then she feels safe and secure with her family. That's what women usually need in relationships. And it boils down to good emotional intimacy, which springs from secure attachment. Men and women have to both have that to really help those women. For men, they need to feel respected. They need to feel more respected than cherished, to be honest with you. I mean, men like to feel loved, but men need to feel respected. And they need to have some power to protect and care for their family to provide resources. It is very hard for men not to be the provider. Very hard. And it turns out it's very hard for women to be the provider. The research not too long ago came out in, from Forbes magazine about women. They, they took a survey of executive level, corporate level women, and 84% of them wished that their male partner made enough for them to stay at home. And 65% of them resented their male partner for not making enough for them to stay at home. Wow. So the research is clear, even among executive corporate women, that they are wanting men to provide. And it's it's very clear that that's happening. So men need that power and they need to know that it's OK for them to not be perfect at the same time. Can they share? There's a huge debate raging on the Internet over. Can you ever share any fear or concern or weakness with your wife ever no, the internet says she will leave the house and sleep with your best friend on the front lawn immediately if you share the slightest weakness with your wife. Um, it turns out that most of those guys are envisioning themselves utterly collapsing and sobbing uncontrollably like a child for months on end, making their wife turn into the boss and trying to handle everything while he falls apart. And then she loses respect for him because his manhood and his masculinity are completely gone. That's the problem. So solution-focused sharing, learning to solution-focused share with your wife on purpose actually takes care of both of your needs. I love that. And, you know, I think that this whole gender debate that we're in today and women being so masculine and having their guard up and being really afraid of softening up. And on the other hand, men, you know, hearing that masculinity is toxic throughout their whole lives and then not knowing how to express their feelings in a proper way, I think the solution, you know, we're not going to go back to our traditional uh, gender roles, but I think integrating our masculinity and femininity respectively is the answer. And, you know, I recently spoke with uh, married girlfriends and one of these girls, she is such a badass, really. She, she is, um, you know, career oriented, amazing. Her husband is like special forces kind of guy, but she does not know how to, uh, you know, soften during conflict. And, and, and I think that it's really important to understand that 
you know, we need to balance out these forces. Me and my husband as well. I I have taught him, you know, during conflict that I am not a small man. I am a woman and I'm a completely different creature. My emotional reactivity is different than yours. And we need to find a way to communicate. So how should men and women communicate with each other more effectively? Keep in mind, <laughs> and I love that. No, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, keep in mind that men typically communicate to solve problems and women typically communicate to share and to bond and to feel close to each other. And it's not to say women never solve problems and that men never bond, but by and large, those are the purposes of our communication. So when you present a challenge of any kind, when you present anything that you want to talk about, women should be clarifying what they're wanting from the experience so that men know what the problem is to solve. If she just wants to share for 20 minutes about her day to feel closer to him, tell him that, hey, babe, can I talk to you about my day and then share with you? Yeah, that's great. Do you want any solutions from me or any feedback? Oh, just I'd love to share with you and then hear about your day. Oh, okay. That That is the problem to solve. She wants to feel close. That's how the male brain will process that. If she just starts talking, his brain is looking for the problem that she wants him to solve and then gets frustrated that she's not stating the problem and then starts trying to find the problem. And then when he does, aha, he starts throwing solutions at her because he's excited and he wants to help her and solve the issue. And then she feels shut down completely that he's not listening to her sharing. And same thing in return. If men say, well, I have a problem, but I'm going to find the solution myself. I don't need to tell my wife. So when he's like all day, like haunted by this dark thing, he's trying to think of a solution for. And his wife's like, what's going on? Nothing. It's nothing. Can I help you? No, you can't. <laughs> Nobody can. It's like, what's going on? And he shuts her out completely because he doesn't think that talking with her will find the solution. Well, talking with her will, number one, help you feel better. It will. And number two, will help her understand what's happening. And number three, will probably help her direct you to the person who has a solution so you can go ask them for help. That's what it should be. So learning to open up, learning to talk, learning to communicate in a way that is more more soft and gentle, right? You can't bark orders at your wife like you're in the military. Um, speaking cooperatively as if you are a team and as if you care about each other. A lot of men need to learn what's called nonviolent communication, which is a little more feminized communication that's more comfortable with, with, the, with the wife or the woman in their life or their daughters or whoever it may be. My um, husband has heard of, that word often. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Does he, how does he take that? How does he take to it? He does not understand what I'm talking about whatsoever. Because you need to, first of all, understand your own emotions to be able to identify the need and the emotion and then to express it. So it's a work in progress, but definitely just making the language softer and, yeah. you know, moving away from a blaming kind of a language, mm -hmm. I think is really important. And I think one of the things that has helped me understand is if I'm in my masculine, if I'm in my fight or flight and I choose fight, I'm just going to bring more of that out of him. So that's also a step that I've taken to say, hey, I'm freaking out right now. I'm this close to starting to cry. I think we need to, <laughs> we need to change the tone a little bit. And it's worked. It's worked. It's, uh, it takes some time. But I think I think you can bridge the gap once you understand yourself and what you need and help him bringing it out of him as well. One thing, and that's so true. One thing I see with a lot of my coaching clients is when the woman enters, when she's scared, 
she'll enter the masculine phase because no, she doesn't feel any masculine people are there to protect her or care for her. So she enters the masculine to become a protector of herself or her children, whoever. And then she goes up against the guy with a masculine argument and he out masculine argues her. But then she flips around and starts (laughs) using tactics that no man would ever accept. So then he starts viewing her as dishonorable and a person who is fighting dirty Right, like you're boxing, you don't kick someone in the in the genitals while you're boxing, kind of thing. <laughs> There's rules here, um, and then she starts using fighting tactics that are completely unacceptable. So he's furious and gets angrier, and then she says, "Why is he acting this way? I don't understand." If she was in her feminine, it would be so much easier to work with him and to talk with him and to navigate him. And there's no conflict. There's no conflict that way because you're just approaching the same problem from two different avenues and working with each other more cooperatively as long as he's a decent guy who is able to will able to do that and has even a basic understanding of human communication that can work. When you're in the feminine, it's so much easier to communicate with men. It's just most women don't know how to be in the feminine, like we talked about earlier, and they don't know how to communicate with men and be direct. They don't know how to say, I want to commit a relationship. Do you? It's eight years of guessing. Right, right. And I think, you know, as you said, there's a lot of fear behind it because we do enter that masculine fight mode because we're afraid. And I think building that security is so important. And, you know, offline, when you're not in conflict, talking about these things and being able to ask for a hug and kind of put your ego aside and become softer, there's so much power in that. You know, you can have what you want. You can have that healthy relationship without losing any of your power. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that's that's what it must be. I work with so many executive coaching clients and a lot of women who cannot figure out how to be feminine. And it's sad because they've had to be more masculine to feel safe. That's attachment. Attachment leads to masculine women very often. Not every woman. Some women are just tomboys. And I get that. It's totally fine. We need, we need room for variance. But um, by and large, when you see a woman who is masculine and scared, neurotic, angry, not masculine and comfortable in it, but masculine and very uncomfortable in it, it's because right, she's right. never learned that being feminine was safe. Being masculine has what, what was kept her safe all those years. And they, they need love more than anybody. Amen. Amen to that. Now, you talk about the female sex drive. And mm-hmm. I love what you have to say here because, you know, I I read a lot of evolutionary psychology. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, some of these guys kind of say, you know, men have been made to kind of spread their seed and they like variability. And women, once they have the children, they're done with you and they don't need sex at all. What do you have to say about that? Um, those people have never encountered the bonding hormone oxytocin. What you're, what you're seeing there is a society of people who grew up without much love or emotional intimacy or connection. So they think everything is pleasure or pain and that's it. They have no understanding of the deeper bonds that hold people together. Men who do that and say, well, it's hard to have sex with the same woman. Well, if you are nothing but dopamine driven and have no oxytocin, yes, it's hard to have sex with the same woman every day for the rest of your life. If you have great oxytocin, the sex gets better through the course of marriage to the point that you have a lot more sex. Let's just say the research (laughs) is actually very clear that people who are married have more sex more often than people who are single. Even people who are single in hookup culture 
the research is very clear. You're more likely to have sex if you're married. Sorry, that's just what it says. And if you have secure attachment, you are way more likely to have sex and good sex that everybody enjoys because you can just ask for it and do it. So the idea that men need to spread their seed everywhere, well, maybe a little bit, but do we want to live by our most basic instincts like that? That's not actually what most men want. Most men want, even young men, one woman that they can marry and have kids with. Low drama, low stress. Okay, I've got that checked. I've got a partner. Now I can move forward in life and we can build something cool together. That's even young men want that. And I've worked with tons and tons of young men. They, even they, law by and large, if they have decent attachment, they want that. It turns out women do too. It's just that when women have that sex drive at one year, the first year is about bonding to him, making him like you, making you like him, trying to connect, a lot of dopamine-driven, a lot of, okay, let's make sure he feels good. At one year, though, women who have attachment issues, they start falling apart. If she's been anxious this whole time and thinks you're going to abandon her, the stakes go higher at one year. And now she's terrified of being abandoned. Now she's afraid all the time. Her sex drive at one year, about 12 months, switches over to oxytocin focus. And if she doesn't have high oxytocin, it's really hard to get aroused, really hard to have orgasms, really hard to have multiple orgasms. It causes all kinds of problems. Her sex drive will be crushingly low because the whole purpose of her sex drive in her eyes is to make you feel good so that you won't leave her. So it's really hard after one year to maintain that. When it's high, when oxytocin's high, she will climb you like a tree. She will ambush <laughs> you in the bathroom. You will not be able to get away. And she heats up much faster. The foreplay doesn't have to be three hours of foreplay to hopefully get her. It's, it's, you know, two minutes, five minutes. And she's usually ready to go. It's much faster because she's ready. And women who have that are more likely to be able to orgasm from just direct intercourse instead of having to have stimulation externally. And, and they're more like have multiple orgasms as well and much more fulfilling sex life because the oxytocin was high to begin with. And that stems from the relationship and from great attachment. So when you hear boomers say, well, we all women just give up on sex after the first year. Yeah. No, that's broken attachment. No, that's, that's broken attachment. Let's fix that. And then everybody can have great sex with people that actually love them. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Anyone out there listening, you know, who's in a relationship, in a marriage where they're not having as much sex, what can they do? Ooh, so here's one. A lot of people don't know about the bonding hormone called vasopressin. Vasopressin is the counterpoint to oxytocin. Oxytocin is released in the absence of stress, hand-holding, cuddling, making out a little bit, right? Taking a walk together, having good conversation, low stress. Vasopressin is released when you solve stress together as a team. Men have more receptors for this than women do, but women still have receptors for it. And women who have low oxytocin, the receptors usually shift over into vasopressin receptors. It's when you solve a challenge together and your brain says, wow, we did it together. They're valuable. Keep them in my life as a teammate. Then you start to emotionally invest in them on purpose and you crave more oxytocin bonding with them. So this is how you get men emotionally invested in relationships is by solving challenges together. My wife does this very simply with me. Hey, babe, how is your week looking? Well, it's going to be pretty tough. Thursday, Tuesday, meetings all day. Oh, man, it's going to be rough. I'm not even going to have time to, to leave my office. Okay, can I have a hot meal ready for you so that you can get a lunch midway through the day and you'll stay strong all day? That would be great. And then I have a hot lunch waiting for me. I eat it real quick. I finish it. I finish the day strong. And she says, hey, did that lunch help? Yes, it did. And that's suppressant. 
we're solving yes. a problem together. She's helping me with my work. Um, paying off, you know, when we were young, we, we had to take on a little bit of debt to survive. We paid it off. We've gone through four childbirths together. We've, that's vast suppression bonding there. We have a fifth child on the way. We're setting up for it. There's vast suppression bonding. We have repaired things. We've built things. Um, we do puzzles together. We, we play cooperative little video games together. She's not very good at them. God bless her. So, <laughs> you know, we play simple games together, but they're still games together that are fun. And, and all kinds of other things that we do together. It is fantastic. It creates vasopressin, which then in turn bonds us so that when a crisis hits, we're already used to working together as a team. So you don't separate. And research shows it's very important. But then also it makes both of us want to vasopressin bond because our brain says, they're a good ally. Keep them around. Let's do it. And so it turns on the oxytocin craving. You start bonding with them that, and then the affection increases, and then the sex drive increases, and you trust each other. Fixing the attachment, absolutely crucial for this. Fixing your attachment together, vasopressin and oxytocin bonding. I have a video course, The Attachment Boot Camp. It's available on my website, adamlinesmith.com. Couples take it together and fix their attachment together, and lo and behold, they start feeling closer, and man, they have way more sex. Fix your attachment together. Even that's a vasopressin bonding experience. Put the time in to spending time together as a couple and remembering why you're a couple in the first place and the sex will get so much better. The sex should spring from that. That's amazing. You know, I didn't really hear much of vasopressin before, um, you know, I heard you talk about it. And I think it's so true, you know, how men bond in military units, for instance, right? That camaraderie, going through hardships together and then being able to rely on someone I think that can completely transform the way we look at marriage and childbirth and, you know, going through the roller coaster of life and really creating that strong bond instead of creating resentment and more insecurity, you know, which we have enough of these days. So when, when we're talking about, you know, bringing your first child into the world, how can couples not turn against each other and instead cooperate. Talk about everything on the table. Talk about how roles are going to shift. Talk about expectations. Talk about what your needs are going to be. Talk about what your fears are. And then set up a schedule and arrange things carefully together. And then once the baby's born, have meetings every day for the first month about how you're both doing, what you need, and how things need to shift. And then have those meetings together. Try to try to get more people around you than just you, the two of you. Get get both your moms involved. This is what grandmas are for. Get your aunts right. involved. Get your sisters involved. Get your cousins involved. This is what women like. Man, women will descend upon you in a swarm. If usually, <laughs> if you ask them, this is what part of what families are for is helping you during times where you need it. Um, get them involved. Make those connections and talk more openly about what you need. And then have follow up meetings. Don't just say, oh, well, she'll tell me what she needs when she needs it. Or, oh, well, if I just look miserable enough, he'll help me. No, like talk. This is where you on the first date saying, hey, this is what I want. Do you want that too? Can we build that together? It comes down to during times of stress, will you say, hey, I need this help. Can you help me so that something worse doesn't happen? That's that's where good, valuable communication is supposed to be. It's it's for the times of stress when you can't afford the the slow hints. Absolutely. I think, you know, these days, 
I see a lot of couples struggling after their first child. And it's a real shame because, you know, we can be sitting at a like a double date situation and, and you just feel the hostility between the husband and wife. You feel that poison. And I always tell my husband, you see that? Did you see that? I don't want that, you know? And I think being really upfront about your needs and being aware, I think that in our culture, having women, you know, very much in their masculine, I think they do have a very hard time letting go, being vulnerable, depending on somebody else and asking for what they need. And I've been very open with my husband about this. Like, I don't want to move apartments while I'm pregnant, you know, or things like that. You need stability. So yes, you you opened your eyes. Tell us, uh, tell us about stability in this case. Well, the, the nesting effect is so real. Um, women do when, when they are pregnant or after having children, they want to settle down. It's not, oh, I'm here for fun. We'll see what happens. It's, no, <laughs> this is what I need. And I value this for my children. A lot of women, if you had attachment issues, you don't want your kids to have them. So you will do anything to try to protect that for them. And a lot of women, this is where they get resentful of their husband as he's not investing to their to their degree in bonding with the children. So then the children don't seem to be building the emotional bonds and they're more nervous around him. So then mom takes it personally. I see this crack apart marriages all the time. It's that book right up there above my head, Exhausted Wives, Bewildered Husbands. Uh, it just tears marriages apart at 10, 15, 20 years, that burning resentment. Uh, but you can solve that way in advance, solve it way in advance by working together as a couple and saying, hey, look, I need stability. How can we build it? What can we do? How can we work together as a couple to get the stability? I need it and our kids need it. What can you do to build this? And good men are not going to say, how dare you ask me to provide stability? Good men will say, <laughs> okay, here's what I need to be able to do that. Can you provide what I need in return? And it 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 just so kind of turns out that gender roles are kind of built around this. It's kind of, just kind of funny. Most couples... <laughs> Even the most progressive couples on earth, they come to me for coaching and they're ashamed. They're like, Adam, we kind of find that we're gravitating toward gender no roles and we hate it, but it, it completely fits us totally. Is that okay? And I'm like, do you need my permission? Like, yeah, it's okay. Is he beating you with a stick every single day screaming at you? No, we don't do that. Well, okay, then great. I mean, that's fine. Like, Live them, update them, and make sure there's room for variance and there's cooperation and there's respect, but gravitate toward if you gravitate toward gender roles great talk about them the best thing you can do is talk about these things with your partner this is why you are building a business together imagine if you co-founded a business you could never talk about what you want never talk about your vision for the business never talk to your partner about problems never ask them for for help with disasters you each had to be completely alone solving problems your business is going to go bankrupt so will your marriage Run your marriage like a business and everything will flow from that. I could not agree more. I think, you know, in terms of gender roles, it's again, this fear component that women have of, I think, not being appreciated and not being seen because, you know, if you are more in the home and you're doing the laundry, you're doing the dishes and your husband doesn't appreciate that and he takes it for granted that can be a real pain point. So yeah. yes, what could husbands could, do here? Well, the fear, and, and I get I get where it's coming from because those women have been around bad men. 
A lot of times their fathers didn't respect women or didn't respect them or didn't respect mom. They're used to men who don't respect women. That's the problem. It's The gender roles aren't the problem. It's a lack of respect from the one who's in the leadership role. It's a lack of respect for masculinity. That's why women are in their masculinity is to protect against bad masculine, unmasculine men. That's the problem. Um, the issue here is making sure he's a man you respect, making sure he's a man that respects you, making sure a man he's, he's going to cooperate with you during conflict, that he's not going to make decisions upon you and act upon you. He's going to make decisions with you and that he is worthy of your devotion and your love. I don't say submission, but devotion and love and, and support. That's my wife would not do what she does if I wasn't respecting her and caring for her. If and I talked earlier, making time for her every evening, making time for our children every morning and every weekend, making time for them as my responsibility to do that, to care for them. If I didn't do that, if I just said, hey, you sit over there, I'm going to go get drunk at the bar. No, she wouldn't. She would not tolerate that. That. And that's, I think, what most women are afraid of, is that they're going to devote themselves to someone who is utterly unworthy. And that's fair. So men yep. step up and be worthy. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I think that is such an important message. And I think it gives a lot of hope because I think we can really invent the kind of relationships and the kind of lives that we want if we look at all these things, you know, with a sober head. So to wrap up, uh, I would love, you know, we're talking about uh, attachment and families and parents, and you have this wonderful tweet here about the self-correcting family system. Parents don't need to be perfect. Parents need to build a self-correcting family system. This fixes any problems. The issue is most of us have never seen a healthy family system that self-corrects. So we don't know the good things we have to teach and do. What stood out to you about that? What made you pick that one? Ooh, okay. Um, I think I think that, first of all, no human is perfect. No parent is perfect. And I think being able to look at your behavior and look at your parenting uh, and own up to your mistakes, you know, and self-correct, as you said, I think that's, everything that a child is looking for. And I have not experienced that much in my family. So I think it really is the missing ingredient. And, you know, we can't reach perfection. But I think if we learn how to self-correct and have a little bit of humility, we can do a lot of good. So where did that quote come from? That's very good. Very, very good. You've hit it. You've hit the heart of it. If you raise kids that are told to just do what you say because you're their boss. They won't want you to be their boss. If you <laughs> raise kids to fear le your leadership, if you raise kids to believe it's not normal for people to cooperate with each other, if you raise kids to believe they have to be perfect to earn your approval, if you don't build a nurturing system where they can come to you with problems, where they can say, dad, that was mean. Dad, I'm not happy with this. Dad, you upset me. Dad, I want this. Hey, dad, can I ask you for this? Hey, dad, can we do this? You know, my kids ask me a billion things every single day. And do I always say yes? No, I, I, I'll tell them no, but I explain why. Hey, you know what, kids, we can't have ice cream for every single meal today because 
this and this and this. In fact, we shouldn't have it every day because of this and this and this. So why don't we work this out? You know what? Let's make a treat. If you guys can take care of this, this and this, then maybe on Friday I can take you out and get some ice cream as long as we eat decent through the rest of the week. That's okay with me. Can we do that? Right? Build a pathway to what they want. No, you're not allowed to have what you want just because. <laughs> All right. If you build a self-correcting system, right? You make a mistake. You yell. You have a bad day. You snap at your kids. You don't go, ooh, that was bad. I should buy them a toy to make them feel better. No, you go to them and say, hey, you know what? I'm really sorry. You didn't deserve that. Um, I was grumpy. I, it was this and this. And it's not an excuse. I just, I don't want to treat you that way. So I won't anymore. I'm really sorry. Is that okay? Are you okay? Can I have a hug? Okay, we're good. What do you want to play? And you play, right? You apologize to them the same way you would to any other human being. Because kids, kids are apprentice adults. You're training them for the adulthood they should expect. If you manipulate them, hurt them, God forbid, or, or just manage them and act like a social worker or try to navigate around them. If you disrespect the dignity of their humanity and you just treat them like funny animals that can talk, eventually they will treat you the same way and they'll think that that's normal. You're setting them up for what to expect in the world. So hopefully the hope is someday if if I've screwed up, I'm sure I have. I'm sure I have somehow. If I screw up, someday my kid comes to me, you know, he's 16, and says, hey, Dad, I have this funny memory from when I was, you know, he's seven now, when I was nine years old. You we were driving, and you said something really kind of weird, and it kind of freaked me out. And I didn't think about it then, but I've kind of been thinking about it lately. Can I ask you what you meant? Oh, yeah, by, by all means. Let me tell you what that meant. And then you clarify. And they say, oh. Well, you said it dumb. <laughs> well, okay, fair <laughs> point. I'm glad you asked me so we could correct it. Otherwise, he will hold on to that memory, like most people will, until he's 90 years old and I'm dead. And he'll be haunted by it his whole life, and I'll never have a chance to correct it. He'll come to me and say, Dad, you hurt my feelings this one time. Dad, you hurt my feelings last week. Dad, this is bothering me. Hey, Dad, I have this problem that I need. Can you help me with it? Hey, Dad, I'm feeling kind of stressed out lately, and I'm kind of feeling some depression things coming on. I don't want it to get too bad. Can, you know, what should we do about it? Instead of getting a call from the police, hey, we found your son dead in a car. He killed himself, right? Things happen. Self-correcting right. family systems. They trust you to cooperate during hard times. Adam, I appreciate you so much. I love your message that you're bringing out into the world. Please you know, keep doing the good work. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This was a wonderful time.